Hello, and welcome to Now Next, the podcast that guides you in navigating your meaningful now and your meaningful next. My name is Mary Claire. I am one of your co-hosts. My pronouns are she, her. And today we are launching our new season, and it's all about embodiment, so I bet you can never guess what this episode is about. What's it about, though? It's just embodiment as an oh. overview, so you know what we're talking about the rest of the time. That's really helpful. That's 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 pretty simple. Straightforward. What is the... What is this disembodied voice I'm hearing? <laughs> exactly. It's really weird to do a podcast on embodiment where we're like, hey, look, bodies matter. And also, yeah. you, can't you can't tell if us. we have them. <laughs> uh, my name's Drew, this other random voice. I am the university pastor at Capitol. My pronouns are he, him. And we are excited today to have with us Dr. Nate Waylon Jackson of Capital University. The Capital University? Are we allowed to say that? I think we can go with the Capital University. The Capital University, yeah. right? But should we? No problem. <laughs> but no. we'd be disgusting if we did. <laughs> Most certainly would be. And we're excited to talk about embodiment. Obviously, the reality is that we are human beings. And as human beings, something of that reality includes this physical meat sack, as one philosopher once talked about bodies as, uh, that, that we inhabit the world in. So the question is, what does it mean to be creatures with bodies? What does it mean to be beings that are embodied? And so this whole season is going to be reflecting on how we think through that in relation to philosophy, in relation to scripture, in relation to social and relational health, in all sorts of different ways. So you might have been hearing some laughter from another disembodied voice. Who are you, disembodied voice? Hey, I'm Nate Whalen Jackson. I am an associate professor of philosophy here at uh, A, Capital University. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Which, one of them. <laughs> yeah, probably not the one you want for branding. Um, uh, I'm also the director of the Signature Learning Program, GAR, professor of philosophy, and uh, I've been here for uh, five or six years. I'm bad at time, and yeah, I'm super excited to join and talk about embodiment. Five or six years? I think so. You're... Your legacy carries like thirty-eight times that weight. This is this is impressive to me. For some that, reason, I thought you were here longer. No, man. Wow. Well, you went to school here, so that also adds. Yeah, I did, but my legacy as a student, I'm hoping, is different from my legacy <laughs> as a professor, right? Like, I think that would be problematic. <laughs> so, a reminder that our podcast talks about vocation, which we talk about as any meaningful and life-giving work you do for the world. One of the implicit things in that assumption, or in that definition, is the assumption that we have a world that we inhabit in a certain kind of way that we have. In an intellectual world, we have a physical world, we have a spiritual world, we're doing these things in maybe separated, maybe integrated, maybe complementary kinds of ways. So as we talk about that, this work is not a linear thing. It is the work that we're doing in ways that moves in and moves out. Sometimes we operate as parents and professors in the same day, in the same moment. But it's not necessarily the same job. Sometimes we're students and siblings in the same moment. But sometimes it's not even close. So as we explore embodiment, we also want to be attentive to this nuance and the reality that it's not easy to separate in lived experience. It might be conceptually easy to separate, but as we live it, it's not quite so easy. But we have invited Dr. <laughs> Nate Whalen Jackson on because your expertise is philosophy. And at least in my experience with philosophy, or just the way I did it, it felt so incredibly disembodied. I'm sorry. 
Oh, no, no. It's not your no. fault. It's just thinking I about I taught half thinking. those classes. It kind of is. <laughs> it's Plato's fault. I taught half. No, no. I think it's, it's the matter of the discipline itself. All right. Thinking yeah, yeah. about thinking. So how would you define embodiment? Oh, that's a, re- that's a really good question, right? So when I think of embodiment, I think of probably traditions of 20th century, like, phenomenology and existentialism so we can understand our bodies as objects in the world pretty easily right like it takes up space in the same way that that refrigerator does for podcast listeners there's a refrigerator the example makes sense if you're here so for the three of us it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah I right can see it. you can do that but that also seems to suggest some uh some separation between like the self and like the physical body but it doesn't make sense Right? To sort of regard the body that way and to, to really get a handle on our experience that way. Right? I can lose my keys quite frequently. It's hard for me to lose my body uh, in the same way. Right? And so in that tradition, we think of embodiment, right, as a kind of orientation towards the world. Right? So uh, a sort of a schema for navigating our, our experiences and our environments. Right? Um, so that is like you are in the world as a subject and thinking about embodiment is thinking about our mental life, our cognition experience, all of that as within this sort of bodily schema. What's a schema? Uh, think of it as like a system of orientation, uh, or, or, Oh, so like uh, a scheme. Yeah. Okay. I'm not seeing the word written out, so I'm like throwing in all sorts of different spellings, but that makes sense. It's all right. It's all good. Like a, a key for a map or something. Right? Okay, like a, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. We talked a lot about maps in previous iterations of this mm. podcast, so. It's just a fancy map slash chart. <laughs> Throw back to the first episode where we learned a lot about boats. So given this question of what is a schema, yeah, what are your practices for embodiment? What helps you understand yourself as a subject in the world and not just an object elsewhere? What are the things that help you feel that embodiment as a real thing in your lived experience? Oh, that's a that's a great question. And now I'm thinking about all the ways in which I don't live a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. I don't know if I've thought about them in terms of like hmm. real grounding practices. We talk this way sometimes, right? Like I need to get back into my body, mm-hmm. right? So you can have that sort of experience of thoughts are moving a million miles an hour or something like this, and you're just kind of feeling disconnected, like outside. And in those cases, I have all those fun like activities from therapy that mm-hmm. help out, right? You know, like here's your breathing exercises, like ways of sort of being present in the moment. And so I was at the gym this morning, and uh, like I was thinking about like the embodiment question, right? And it would just be so nice, like if you really could be a disembodied mm. mind, right? And not worry about cardio. But at the same time, <laughs> like there's something really nice and reorienting about the physical practice of like moving one's body, right? The paying attention to, to the way you're breathing. Again, I'm on a stationary bike, so I'm not actually moving towards anything. But the way in which, like, the parts of the body are moving and things like that. And that can, like, help bring you back in. I don't know. So sometimes when I think about, like, embodiment in particular, I do work in philosophy and disability, where there's really interesting sort of phenomenology, people thinking about the experience as a kind of a disruption of the lived body. That's a, a phrase from S.K. Tombs, right? Mm. A, a disruption of the lived body, which is... 
uh, a kind of disruption of our orientation towards the world, a way of being like called into consciousness of like the way we're oriented as a distinctive feature of, uh, of disability, right, with regard to embodiment. And so it's, uh, it's kind of interesting thinking about like ways in which we find ourselves disrupted out of our bodies and then get ourselves back in. And then also ways in which like something like physical disability has this feature of like a disruption of the lived body. That's a very different way of sort of being out of that orientation and then thinking about how you navigate that kind of experience. I think it's really powerful to the disruption of the lived body because disruption, it has a, at least in my sense, like it has a negative connotation, but I'm not sure it always has to, right? Like sometimes we need to disrupt things that aren't working for us the way that can be healthy. My disordered thinking or my unhealthy relationships need disruption in order to find reorientation toward sensing what is what is good and right and life-giving in this spot. So I'm curious how we think about embodiment as a way that relates to knowing. Because so often our senses of knowing are, well, that's not a good argument, you're too emotional. So Fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, so yeah. like we have differentiated and, and divided embodied experience from proper argumentation or from proper knowing mm -hmm. and i i am not convinced by that any longer i used to be yeah i think i think it's a huge temptation to think of like real knowledge as somehow not particular mm -hmm. right and not coming from like a situated and i think there's a long tradition of that in philosophy right so you know, like mm -hmm. plato real knowledge is of the forms you recollect them you got to hang out with them in your soul right that was nice before you were embodied and then you got distracted by like food and sex and now you just don't know things and i think Right, we carry that forward in a lot of ways to say like, look, there's objective, uh, we would hope largely accessible evidence from regard from any perspective, right? That one would sort of assent that, you know, P is a rational belief, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, and uh, P in philosophy refers to like any statement. It's a variable for a, a declarative sentence. Uh, it's not urine necessarily. <laughs> it uh, could be. It, Depends right. on what you're arguing. So, like, all of that is a fancy way of saying that, like, yeah, there's this long tradition in philosophy of, like, disregarding embodiment, right? But I think there's a lot of responses to that, particularly, like, standpoint epistemology, uh, which is a view that suggests that uh, people who occupy very particular, in particular, like, uh, often oppressed perspectives, mm. right, have, like, knowledge that would otherwise be inaccessible regarding specific, like, structures of oppression and problems, right? Mm. And I think that view is pretty compelling. I think in other areas of philosophy, there's a recognition that without a kind of emotional attunement, there's something missing or incomplete about uh, one's claim to knowledge. So imagine like you made a claim, something is unjust, but you like weren't in any way pissed off about it. Like, it seems like you've missed something, right? Mm -hmm. Like you should be a little bit perturbed. If something is unjust. Uh, annoyed, yeah, <laughs> yeah, if something is unjust, right? It should be disrupting. Yeah, exactly, Ooh. exactly. And, okay. and it seems like if you, if you don't have that, that might undermine your claim to like really know in a deep sense. So I think I think that's another kind of avenue where we, we have to respect right, our embodiment. We have to respect mm -hmm. the role of emotions and real claims to knowledge. We sneak embodiment into all kinds of supposedly perspective-free claims. So we talk about like grasping concepts, <laughs> right? You like, wonder why I say it's a disembodied practice. Yeah, yeah, like, like you see the right answer. But, well, yeah, man. 
that's all analogical language for mm. like features of embodiment. And so we we tend to have this kind of like masking phenomena, right? <laughs> but yeah, like our, our our knowledge comes from like a, a position that like we occupy, mm. right? Uh, mm. Our sort of historical, social, and even like sort of physical positionality, right? But I would like to talk about the mind-body problem. That's a good we've time. been dancing around it, and I took your modern philosophy course, and about every discussion post, I just griped about the mind-body problem. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't think it should be a problem. You're not like, like a convinced dualist. No. I was like, why can't they just both exist at the same time and be mm. like different ways of explaining how we work? Like different, different perspectives, I guess. Yeah. Was my was my gripe? I don't think I said it like that then, because there was a pandemic starting, so the brain wasn't working well. But I don't even remember when I taught that class. So it was it was <laughs> spring twenty twenty. Oh, that's right. That was in the the great disruption. Mm-hmm. There we go with disruption. And I was trying and I was trying to learn modern philosophy. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Every ministry class at that same time. No, that was fall twenty twenty. That was fall twenty twenty. Okay. Everything was shutting down, and I was making you read Kant. <laughs> I was like, enough with these monads. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to survive, and I don't have time to be angry. At you know what this historical moment calls for? Spinoza. Spinoza wasn't the worst. I like Spinoza. Spinoza's fun. Spinoza's a good time. Spinoza wasn't the worst. That should be the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the way I'm just selling modern philosophy class. It's not bad. <laughs> you learn a lot about the Enlightenment. You also learn to hate the Enlightenment. You learn a lot about it. All right, so you want to talk about the mind-body problem. Yes. All right, for listeners, the, the mind-body problem idea would be that there are two fundamental substances. This is called substance dualism. One substance is physical. It has uh, certain kinds of properties, namely extension. It, like, takes up space. Right, so physical things take up space, like the refrigerator, right? Mm. And then there's another fundamental substance, and that's mental stuff. And its like fundamental property is that it's not extended. And like mental stuff, you think about like mental events, right? So like my experience as of uh, like purpleness of the sign over there, right, does not take up space. Like that's an experience. It's a mental event, right? I can think of like the mental event of, I don't know, uh, arguing with myself this morning about whether I should have like a fourth cup of coffee. I mean, I lost that argument, but like that didn't (laughs) take up space. Things that did take up space were the cup of coffee. You know, it seems like you got both, right? You have like a body and then you have a mind. Uh, And so the question for a dualist is going to be like how these two things interact. So how does the mind influence the body and the body influence the mind? And it's weird to think of them as uh, affecting any causal change on the other because they just don't share common properties. And you ideally would want both of those things to happen, right? Uh, Just for a good explanation of reality. Uh, If Drew stabs me, I'll be in pain, right? That's a physical change that causes... (laughs) A mental, uh, if you're hearing this, is too late. And <laughs> and also you would want, like, uh, if you're into free will or whatever, uh, you would want, like, mental events uh, to make physical changes, too. You would want the decision to have that fourth cup of coffee to be, like, causally affected. So that's, like, the problem of interaction, right? And modern philosophy has all kinds of, like, weird answers uh, to that question, right? So Descartes would say things like there's a kind of combined substance, right? Uh, where, like, the mental stuff is sort of in the physical, and then people would respond, that makes no sense, and he responded, yes, it does, shut up. 
<laughs> Read some of his correspondence. It's insane. Leibniz says, like, well, they don't really interact. They just uh, sort of run along parallel tracks, right? So, like, the bodily stuff and the mental stuff, like, they correspond to one another, right? I think I'll have another cup of coffee, and then I have a cup of coffee. But one doesn't cause the other. And this is, like, the pre-established harmony thesis, right? And, like, well, what's making sure everything runs in line? Well, God, that's what God does. That's God's job. And then, <laughs> right, uh... You know, some people just deny substance dualism. So uh, mental stuff is fundamentally explainable in terms of physical, or physical is fundamentally explainable in terms of mental stuff. That's um, idealism. So like this issue of how like minds and bodies relate and interact is sort of like the, the key thread in modern philosophy, right? It's, it's deeply mysterious. And a lot of that, you know, uh, Descartes included, uh, feeds into what we sort of talked about earlier, right? A traditional denigration of the body, mm. right? So for Descartes, you know, uh, he's the I think, therefore I am guy. He's, he's that guy, right? Uh, he continues, right? So like thinking about what you are, most essentially he says, I am a thinking thing. Uh, that's what defines me. It's like the mental, right? And then the body, I think he describes it. My body is uh, the body with which I am intimately conjoined, mm. I think is his phrase. Yeah, so it's not like you are the body, right? You're the mind. You happen to continue to be like conjoined in experience hmm. with this body. And so, yeah, there definitely is this like central philosophical problem and then a tradition of kind of elevating the mind mm -hmm. as a separate thing at the expense of the body. So one thing I can imagine some listeners thinking, mostly because I used to think this, and so if no one else has this problem, just answer it for me. How do we differentiate in the philosophical conversation between mind and brain? Because often in our common parlance, we've mm -hmm. assumed those things to be the same, but the brain is a physical thing. It is a part of the body. Yeah. So how did how do philosophers differentiate mm -hmm. from that? The brain's a physical thing. It's right. part of the body, right? Like, it takes up space. And uh, you can do neat things, uh, like map which parts of the brains have parts of the brains. That's awesome. Parts <laughs> of the brain react when you show people things or play sounds or have them think of stuff or feel sad. I don't know, right? You can, like, map that, and that's really cool. Uh, but that's all, like, physical, right? That's, that's all physical stuff. So the brain, there are people who think it's identical to the mind, but it seems to have different properties, right? Namely, extension. So I think it's Leibniz kind of has this, like, interesting moment uh, where you, you blow up the brain. Not in the sense, like, not explode it, but, like, you make it large. And then you, like, look for the mental events you don't see mental events you see physical changes and mm -hmm. reactions and stuff going on but you don't see sort of the mental event so the mind would be the i don't know like the mental stuff right the collection of experiences and mental events and then that gets into a whole like can of worms I'm right realizing I think I, I think I like Leibniz more than I thought because I got all messed up in all of his theology. But the idea of the parallel tracks, I kind of dig. He's got some good stuff. He's got some good stuff, and I was just angry about the other things. I missed it. That's a lesson. <laughs> That's a lesson to be learned. Life. Doesn't involve That's... with the theme, but I'm eating humble pie. It's, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Occasionally, my family like they make fun of me for like liking Hanson. I'm just like they got some tracks. I yeah. only know Umbab. <laughs> what is going on right now? <laughs> There's so many relationships in this life. Only one or two will last. <laughs> this is everything I wanted it to be in. Um, so what do we do with that mind-body problem, right? Like, 
Is it a problem? So so go from the the, the that is the history of the problem. Yeah. Like today for us in this experience. What do you think? Is it a problem? Is it is it something that there is some kind of solution or conception that helps us better understand? I think it's a deep problem. Uh, mm. And I think the way in which we we talk about the body like captures some of it right so mm-hmm. i think we do tend to regard like the mind as something like fundamentally like distinct and different and occupies this like sort of more objective position and you think about getting back into my body this is like really common people talk that way right mm-hmm. it does uh, seem to reinforce a vision of the body as kind of secondary that's not like philosophically helpful but i think it's like in the culture uh, i don't have a great philosophical solution to the mind-body problem, particularly if you're a dualist. Like, if you're committed to that, I got nothing for you. Also, the body reminds us that it's not secondary if they're two different things. Yeah. Like, I was just talking mm. to you before we started recording about, like, your thoughts do take up space because they will make your body, like, cry or sleep if you're not taking care of yourself. Like, they're so intertwined, whether they're separate or the same. It's all the body, it's all the mind, it's something we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Like... The thing that I'm stuck on right now, I think in a good way, that's making me question how I understand the mind is I absolutely agree that it doesn't take up space, right? Like the mind doesn't appear on a coordinate plane. Right. But there's at least one way in which our minds and our bodies do take up something in a similar way, and that's they both take up periods on a calendar, right? Hmm. They they both occupy time. And so time is not space, right? But... So, like, you know, quantum mechanics and and how many dimensions there are and how these things operate relate. But I wonder what it means that, at least as far as our experience suggests, our Mm -hmm. bodies and our minds occupy the same time, even though one is not even in space, right? Right. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with that, but that's where it's, like, currently sitting in my chest. I'm wondering, like, what does this mean? How does all of this come together for life-giving, meaningful work for the world? Oh, man. Practical stuff? Practical stuff. Embodiment. (laughs) (laughs) It's so... um, (laughs) I like it. It's very serious. And I need to give an answer, and I can't stop laughing. (laughs) And I just remember in grad school being told that I didn't have enough gravitas for this job. And I'm like, oh man, they're right. <laughs> oh, it's a soul immortal. I got like 12 jokes. Nate, stop. All right, so what does it mean for uh, important, meaningful, life-giving work in the world? I'm going to meander my way to an answer on that one. Uh, I'm going to talk about philosophy real quick and just how I think uh, respect for embodiment sort of reshapes what philosophy is and where it starts, right? So philosophy instead can start from the experience of problems, the experience of tensions, of inability to navigate and experience, right? And we can start to think about the features of our experience that give rise to things that make it difficult to to navigate or function. And I think that kind of orientation gives a kind of uh, practical oomph to philosophy. So sort of instead of sitting back and thinking of the necessary and universal uh, truths. What I find myself doing a lot is reading a lot of work that's coming out of uh, people doing like uh, sociology in mm. particular and getting a sense of like the felt experience that people have. And then in large measure what philosophy can do, or at least what I can do, and I shouldn't label that philosophy, right? Like, you are the entire discipline of philosophy. No. no. <laughs> it's now enshrined in this podcast. <laughs> 
it's law now. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how it works. The whole APA is just like, <laughs> not this guy. <laughs> All right, so what I'm interested in is like teasing out the, the logic, right? The sort of reasons and arguments, seeing ways in which those like forms of oppression and marginalization can be like self-reinforcing and then see how they might be challenged, right? Mm. It's the task is to like get a handle on the operation of the problems and then envision new ways of being in the world with the expectation that there will of course be future problems and we get to keep going so uh thinking about meaningful like life-giving work in the world right like uh the reorientation towards embodiment is like a reminder that you are in the world all of your like actions tasks mental physical whatever are like taking place in a historical, social, and like embodied moments, right? From a place that if they are going to be meaningful, they are going to be meaningful in the world. And I think it's a call to to, to recognize the, the world, right? It's like the site or locus of meaning as opposed to some escape from it. Taking embodiment seriously uh, helps us to, to kind of orient ourselves uh, towards taking vocation very seriously as something that's like embedded in our context as opposed to a kind of latching on to a meaning that somehow like escapes the moment so our last question that we ask every guest as long as we get to it what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid oh man you like assume a very rich vocabulary of a child. I think uh, as, a, as a kid, the thing that would have helped me out, I might not have had like a, a vocabulary of like vocation of like this is meaningful work in the world, but I probably would have appreciated a conversation to the effect that it's important to like cultivate appreciation for like the meaning of one's actions regardless, mm. right? So I'm trying to think about like my experience, like it's going to be weird because being a philosophy professor is like a weird thing to be, <laughs> but like when I was a kid, uh, particularly like middle school, I really wanted to be a musician. Like I looked at Capital initially as like a con person. Hmm. But, uh, like, I'm, I'm disabled, right? I have a progressive neurological disorder, right? So I lost motor function in my hands and, like, couldn't play an instrument anymore. So, like, that was gone, right? Like, that experience of, like, the thing I wanted to do was just shot, right? And I, I kind of accidentally ended up in a philosophy class somehow. And, like, that was very fun. And I just kind of pursued that. Uh, but I also had this idea that, like, my self-worth sort of, uh, rested on like getting a PhD and like doing all these things. And so I set up a bunch of like external markers for saying something is like meaningful or important mm. or whether it was like good and my vocation or whatever. Uh, and I don't think I should have done that. I think uh, it would have been better kind of think about vocation as something that's like cultivated across a bunch of different domains and a bunch of different things you can do. And along with that, like cultivate a kind of like openness to contingency, right? Sort of like a receptivity to experience. So I think that would have been would have been helpful. That said, like, you know, I'm happy I'm here. Glad I got the whole doctorate in philosophy thing and I'm teaching it, but I can say my initial sort of like push to do it all the way might have been coming from a, a weird place. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. This has been super fun. Yes. It's a good time. It's always a good time. Thanks to the generous Philip N. Knutson Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministries, Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Your co-hosts are Drew Tucker and Mary Claire Kunkel, as well as your producer, it's me, Mary Claire Kunkel. And our C-worthy theme music is brought to you by Shane Ivers. Thanks for listening.